0: Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter.
1: I have realized, yes, there is a difference. There is a difference between artist grade and student grade paints. It's just not as big of a difference that if you were starting out and you were trying to learn, I wouldn't make that your biggest priority. There's plenty of good things that you can learn from student grade paints.
0: Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This month, I'm talking with acrylic artist, Jed Dorsey. In the conversation, you'll learn the stages of creativity and why they matter, ways to make your photo reference work with your canvas shape, and how to get harmonious color every single time. If you wanna hear more of the conversation, head over to Patreon and support at the gloss or high gloss levels. Not only will you support the show, you'll get future episodes early and bonus conversations with artists, including Jed Dorsey. In the bonus conversation, Dorsey talks values, making strong compositions, and the difference between details and interest. Head to paint slash support and look for the Patreon link. And if you're looking for show notes, head to com slash podcast slash episode 27. All right, here we go. Hi Jed, welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art?
1: Hi, Kelly. I grew up in a house of artists. My dad and mom both painted in watercolor. So that was where it began for me. And I was encouraged along. Until high school, I discovered music. And I actually kind of left doing anything related to art until I was 25. And it was on a trip to Whistler, BC with my wife. And I walked into a gallery fell in love with these paintings and wanted to discover how could I do this? Because the paintings were not watercolor. They were oils and acrylics. So that was really the launching point because I followed this one artist, got a book of his that Christmas and realized that I could take a workshop from him. And that launched me into painting and acrylics.
0: Growing up with watercolors, what was it that you liked about acrylics that you hadn't yet found in watercolor?
1: I absolutely love watercolor, but I don't love painting in watercolor, if that makes sense. I love looking at watercolors. They're extremely beautiful for me, but my personality is very spontaneous and not that great at planning. So, you know, when you have to leave white in watercolor so that you have it at the end of the painting that's kind of difficult for me where acrylics really fit my personality super well because they have some characteristics that are similar to watercolor you can thin them down you can do washes and glazes and different things like that but they also carry a lot of other characteristics like you can paint from dark to light you can thick passages of paint you can have an impasto like just a lot of different kind of things that fit me and one of the biggest ones being you can fix mistakes you can do something and realize it's not what you wanted and you can go back in a minute or five minutes and the paint will be dry enough that you can paint over it and it's it's just such a forgiving medium for me
0: So this is a materials question, but from a materials standpoint, what's the biggest challenge you see your students facing with acrylics? Most
1: people who start working in acrylics struggle a bit with two things. One, if they're used to painting in oils, they'll struggle with it dries fast. And I think it's different for people who haven't painted in oils because they don't have an expectation that it's going to be there an hour later wet for them to come back to. And the other, I would say, is generally acrylics dry a half shade darker than when they're wet. And so for people to match colors or to figure out how to go back into an existing painting and touch something up, you know, those are the places where it becomes really kind of hard if the paint's going to dry a little bit different than when you put it down.
0: Also, when you're learning, you might not know that. So there can be a disconnect between like, wait, 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 I thought I did this right. Why does it look different now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody tells you that. It doesn't say that on the uh, tube of paint.
0: Talking about your materials, what type of acrylic paints do you use? And then what does that type of paint allow you to do?
1: Before I really was working as a professional artist, I just bought whatever I could afford. You know, Basics, student grade paints, and I just used them and they were fine. I am not a really big paint snob. I thought that there were a few colors that I could obviously tell in the lower grade paints that I didn't like to use. They were white and yellow orange those colors in student grade paints they just really are bad but if you have a phthalo blue in student grade paint i can guarantee you it's powerful enough for you and it's potent enough and it's kind of the same with most of the paints like ultramarine blue dioxazine violet any of that it doesn't really matter but as i became more of a professional artist and i started thinking about what are my paints what am i putting on here and is there a, a difference I have realized, yes, there is a difference. There is a difference between artist grade and student grade paints. It's just not as big of a difference that if you were starting out and you were trying to learn, I wouldn't make that your biggest priority. There's plenty of good things that you can learn from student grade paints. But when you start thinking about, well, what do I want to do? trying to do this as a career. What I found is the heaviest paints are my favorites. I don't use a lot of thinners and a lot of mediums and stuff like that. Generally, if I want to thin something down, obviously I will. I'll have some Medium there. I'll thin it down with a mixture of medium and water for glaze or something like that. But I want my paint to be as thick as possible in general, just because that gives me a range of what I can do with it. Because I can always thin it down, but it's a lot more difficult to get it to be thick and to get it to be as opaque as I would want it to be, especially as I'm working later in the painting. So the brands that I've used most. Utrecht has become a favorite of mine. I've used a lot of Liquitex, professional, heavy-bodied, and also Golden. But most recently, this is kind of getting back to the question of the color shift. I was watching another artist, and he was talking about Winsor & Newton. And they have a professional line of acrylic paints that he was saying, it doesn't really have a color shift. So... I went online that day as I am such a, you know, hey, I just heard about this. I need to get it now kind of person. And I ordered it. And I have to say it's been really neat to use because while it's not quite as thick as the heavy-bodied Utrecht or Liquitex, but it does really kind of hold true to the color that you put down is the color that you end up with in some ways i don't even think about it anymore because i've been painting for so long but it was recently when i was working on a painting that i'd already started it and painted on it but i wanted to adjust a few things and I was able to go in there and I realized after half an hour, I was like, wow, I just mixed the color that I wanted and it didn't shift at all. It still looks exactly like I put it down. And I thought, this is actually really cool <laughs> because in my mind, mentally, I'm always making an adjustment from my experience. So I'm I'm not consciously doing it anymore because I have painted for so long with acrylics, but it it's kind of nice to think, wow, if I use this, I may not even have to make that little adjustment in my head.
0: What brushes do you use?
1: My favorite brushes are Princeton Catalyst. And the reason I like them is because they are firm. They're still strong and they can spread paint around just fine. But they also, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they have kind of like a split end. Oh, they don't call it a split end, I know. I don't remember what they call it, but that's the best way that I can describe it is that the bristles come to a point, but they don't come to one point. They come to two or three points at the end because they've kind of broken it up. And what that does is it creates a softer feel on the end of the brush. And so it kind of gives me both the firmness that I need to push the paint around and kind of a soft feel if I want to do any kind of feathering or that type of brushstroke stroke.
0: Yeah, because I feel like with acrylic, many of us don't think about the importance of a brush until we've been painting for a little bit of time. But then it makes a huge difference, especially with acrylic and heavy body. You've gotten a brush that is kind of flimsy, which can be really beautiful if you use fluids or, you know, work more the watercolor way. But if you're working with heavy bodies and a flimsy brush, like it is so frustrating because you can't move the paint. Yeah, for sure.
1: And again, this is the kind of thing where I was not much of a brush snob. In fact, I only bought the cheapest brushes. You know how you can get those 10 packs? I bought those for years and years, and I would only take out the couple flat brushes in the middle. And then I would have, I had probably a few bigger flats, but I primarily use flats. So I never even thought about getting nicer brushes I just it just wasn't on my radar because I used these and they were fine until I went to a workshop and John Poon he used to work in oils but he works in acrylic now and he recommended a different kind of brush and so I, I went I bought some of those and I thought oh wow these are really nice and then I was at the plein air convention walking around and I stumbled across the Princeton brush booth and got to talk with Some of the people then there and one of the guys said, hey, well, why don't you try out one of these? And I didn't try them right away. I brought them home because I just thought, well, they'll probably be kind of like the other ones. And it was probably a month or so later that I thought, I'll give it a shot. And after using it, I thought the end of the brush is where the difference is. The sturdiness of it was similar to the brushes that I'd had before, but it was the end, that split end kind of feel that really made them, in my opinion, be uh, the brush that I wanted to go with.
0: Moving into process a little bit. First off, do you work a la prima?
1: Yes, I primarily work a prima. I mean, what I'll do is I'll usually have a long session and get the painting 95% done. And then I will come back into it if I see something that needs to be done.
0: Okay. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Jed's work, he you are primarily a landscape painter. So picture landscapes in your mind with all of this. So yeah, could you walk us through your process?
1: Yes, for sure. My process is... Five steps. I got four of them from John Poon, but I have kind of internalized them and I added a first step that he did not have. But they're design, draw, block in, refine, and finish. So if you think about those, it's a natural progression that you probably do this anyways, that kind of thing. But it's helpful to think about it in stages because you can evaluate you're painting in those stages. Like at the end of each stage, you can think about, well, how is it looking now? So design, of course, is before you even pick up your paintbrush. In my book, it's doing a thumbnail sketch or several thumbnail sketches. It's if you're working from a photograph, then it's cropping the photograph. It's doing any kind of work that you need to do to create a compelling design. So if you're on location looking out, For me, it starts with me taking my hands and making a little viewfinder with my hands that I'm looking through. And I'm kind of trying to find a composition in the scene that I'm looking at that would make a good painting. This part is by far, in my opinion, it's the most important part of the painting process because if you have really great brushwork, really great colors, and a poor design, your painting will be mediocre. If you have poor brushwork, okay colors, and a really great design, your painting will still be very nice. It will still be very good because the design is primarily how the darks and the lights work together. It's mostly about the values of the painting, and that's why when I teach, I try to get people to do thumbnail sketches because it's a very simple way to come up with a design that only takes five minutes or 10 minutes, and you can do several versions of them. Whereas if you paint and you start your painting without thinking through the design, you might paint for several hours. And at the end of it, you might think, oh my goodness, why doesn't it look good? And you're always trying to figure out what it is. And it's a lot harder to change your design at the end of a painting than it is in that first stage so design is stage one and then the second stage is to draw and what that means is essentially you're taking your design and you're transferring it onto your canvas one important thing with this is that you have the same aspect ratio on your design as you do on your canvas a lot of times people have a photograph that they love and they want to paint it but they don't ever do the design work to change the aspect ratio. So then they take a long horizontal image and they try to fit it onto a square canvas and everything gets squished together. It doesn't look as good, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's simply because you didn't match the aspect ratio of your canvas to your design. So I always i am thinking about that you know and i try to get students to think okay am i painting for a particular canvas because then you want to just make sure your design matches that and you can work with your design or if it's the other way around you know you have a design that you really love then you need to find a canvas or you need to find a panel that matches that and then of course it's just being accurate with what your design says it doesn't mean that you have to draw every detail onto the canvas. It just is the placement of the objects. It's making sure that if you have a focal area, uh, you know, your strongest contrast between light and dark, and it's up in the top right corner of your painting like if you're going by the rule of thirds or that it's like in that area that you don't somehow shift that down in your drawing to have it be somewhere else like everything needs to kind of correlate but it doesn't have to be an intensive sketching exercise and I'll do that often with paint so I'm not even necessarily drawing it with a pencil or anything like that the third stage is blocking. And that is just simply taking what you've drawn onto your canvas and then starting to fill in the colors and the values. For me, I will usually start with darks and get those established. I think it looks better to have your darks transparent, thinner underneath, and having your lights and your midtones and then your lights and your highlights on top and more opaque and thicker. It's a general principle that lots of artists throughout history have kind of done and it it's not as important with acrylics as it is with oils with oils you really need to be consciously thinking i'm painting from thin to thick because if you paint thin oil paint over thick oil paint it will crack and it will do bad things but with acrylic that's not the issue but it still looks nice and it's still a good way of going so the other important thing with blocking in your painting is that it makes it easier to evaluate everything. When I'm putting a color down, if I'm doing it on a toned canvas or if I'm doing it on something, say for instance, it was just a white canvas, you put a color down, well, that white is going to cause the color to look really dark, perhaps, whereas if you were putting it down on a canvas that was toned with a very dark background, that color might look really light. And so it's not actually until you get all the colors on and you kind of start seeing them as they work together that you're really able to evaluate, oh yeah, that's the right value. You're making your best educated guesses and you're, you're able to see what you're doing, but you want to get that whole painting blocked in before, in my opinion, before you start really trying to refine an area because, you know, you might get your subject, like your main focal point really good in your opinion but then you put the sky in or something like that and you realize oh wow my subject is too dark or the color isn't correct the hue you know like the actual color so that's the blocking stage it's not super long but it's kind of like you're trying to cover the canvas and you're trying to get the feel for the painting and then the longest stage is stage four and that's to refine so it's really where you come in and you're starting then to try to bring form to what looked just like a batch of color. Now you're trying to make it look like a tree and you're trying to bring some form to it, make it look like it has volume and depth. It's where you're bringing atmosphere in. You know, you're refining and adjusting the colors so that you have reflected light coming off of something. All of those things that would actually make the subject and what you're painting look like it's real. The first part is more like two-dimensional. The blocking, you can think of as two-dimensional. The refining and the adjustment is where you start seeing it as three-dimensional, you know, the illusion of the third dimension. And then usually after that, there's a little break. You know, after going through those four stages, you might be kind of tired. Your brain might be a little bit needing a break. And often I find that if you have been looking at the same thing for a really long time, you stop seeing it for what it is. And so in between stage four and five, you know, you could think, well, maybe I'd go for a walk or I go to bed and I wake up the next day and I look at it. But step five is to finish. And it may or may not need to really have much. You might come back and look at your painting and think, you know, it's good. Like, I don't need to do anything. Or you might come back to it and, you know, sometimes that first look that you have is very telling. And you say, oh, wow, I didn't even notice, but there's a big black blob in the sky or something like that. Or there's a really distracting line that is drawing my eye off to the corner of the painting. And I need to kind of break up that line. So finishing is not necessarily a set amount of time or anything like that it's really giving yourself time to step away and then evaluate your painting and look at it with fresh eyes you know it could be the time when you ask for input from somebody else if you are having a hard time knowing if it's done or not if you have somebody trusted and the other reason I I like the distinction between refine and finish is because I think what happens with people is that I can do the same thing. Have you ever heard the term to lick your painting the idea of you just are holding your paintbrush and if you think of an ice cream cone that you're just licking and licking and licking and you're not thinking about it you're just licking 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 it's that idea and if you ever are in a like when i've taught classes i'll walk around and i'll look at people as they're working and i'll i can tell when somebody gets into that zone because they aren't really aware of it themselves they're just kind of putting on dab 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 and it's just because the process of painting is fun and <laughs> they like it, right? But when you lose the intentional purpose of what you're doing, those brushstrokes become repetitive and they actually hurt your painting. You're not refining it anymore. You're, you're kind of dragging it down into uh, something that you don't want to do. So if I ever find myself in that place where I don't know what's the next thing that I need to do? I say, this is the time when I need to stop. I need to take that break away because my eyes aren't seeing if there's anything left. And if there's nothing left, then why would I just keep painting, right? Why would I, if I don't know what I'm doing, I need to take that time, take a break and let there be a finish stage. And the reason for that is because you wanna finish your painting with enthusiasm just like you start a painting. This is a little bit of my personality and a little bit of my painting style, but I like more impressionistic, looser paintings. So if I allow myself to get out my smallest brushes and paint and paint and paint, my paintings will turn into something that I don't really intend them to be. So a lot of times I'll try to reserve a few bold brush strokes for the end to just say I'm going to end it with kind of the same energy that I started it with.
0: When you're looking at a scene, either in a photograph, although if it's a photograph, you've already made some choices, but if you're looking at a reference, how do you begin simplifying that? Because I'm assuming you don't just paint everything you see. How do you decide what to put in a painting and what to leave out?
1: That's a really good question that a lot of people do ask. And John Michael Carter... He is an oil painter. I took a workshop from him a couple years ago, and he said, when you look at a scene, only 15%, percent five percent of the visual information of what you see is important in your painting, is necessary to convey what this is. So if you think about that, that means 85% of what you see is not important. It doesn't help your painting. That's a lot of what we see, and if you are questioning the validity of that, a lot of times it's because we're so used to photographs, and photographs work differently than our eyes do. A camera captures a scene, and every part of that, in general, is in focus, but that's not the way that our eyes work. Our eyes can only look at one thing at a time, and if you actually focus on that one thing and then kind of with your brain, think about what does the peripheral vision look like around that? You realize that it's fuzzy. It's not focused. It's just kind of, it's there. And you can tell what the things are that are in your peripheral vision, but they're not all demanding your attention. And so I think that when I paint, I try to remember that for one thing. Okay. I don't need to put everything in and then I think, what are the major shapes? Because if you kind of simplify things down into big shapes and you kind of group things together, it's very helpful in saying, oh, well, that over there doesn't matter. Or, you know, maybe it's still an interesting piece of information but i i can kind of group it in with this larger shadow and then it's not going to really stand out but it will still be there and so i think that for me it's just kind of being aware that i don't need to put everything in And then it's deciding what is the most important thing. Like, what am I trying to convey? And then making decisions on everything else based on how does it fit? Is it going to help? Is it going to help the design if I have this object in there? And, you know, if you take a photograph and you're working from a photograph, sometimes what's really good is to make the photograph blurry, right? So that you're not as tempted to put in all the details. Here's another thing. This is just another tip. If you're a person who is wanting to grow in not trying to put in all the details and trying to figure out, look, what do I put in? Give yourself a time limit. That's what I often will do in a in a workshop. I have an hourglass or I just have a clock and I'll just say, you've got 30 minutes and we're going to paint a 9 by 12 canvas and I want you to paint it. You've got 30 minutes. Go. And it's very hard for people at first. But after a couple days of doing it, some of the best paintings come out of those little sessions because they've forced themselves or I forced them to. and they, But they started getting into it to see the big picture and not get caught up in the, the little things as much, because when you have a short amount of time, you don't have the capacity to even worry about the details. You're just trying to get the Here's here's what it is. Can you tell what it is, right?
0: Also, listening to you talk, I'm struck by this. There's sort of safety in details. Because if you are painting and you can tell what everything is, because someone will look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's, those are trees. That's a house. That's a road. Those are the tiny little pebbles on the road. Like, I can see it. I know it. As opposed to I think that there's some sort of inherent risk of being like, Yep, that house is in focus and everything else is like this beautiful blur. That feels more risky somehow.
1: I've never thought of it like that, but I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, perhaps part of it is because of photographs, because everything is in focus and clear and crystal. And, but it's also probably our tendency, you know, and, and maybe there's this part of fear. We want to, We want to do a good job right? And so we want to finish something and and it, maybe we think it isn't finished yet. It, how could I call this a finished painting? Because I haven't, I've only put in a few big brush strokes over here and, it, you know, I haven't put in the tiny details yet. And I think it takes courage to do anything creative. Okay. I'm just thinking about this as we're talking, but if you copy a photograph, that's being creative, but it's not being as creative as if you use the photograph as a reference point and then you you create your own picture out of it. And so maybe it is. it's like holding on to what is really familiar because we're kind of afraid to let go of that. But the real adventure starts when we let go of it and we say, I'm just going to go out and try. <laughs>
0: How do you suggest to someone who's just getting started with color that they approach color? Because color can be really overwhelming. And it's also the thing that so many of us become painters because we love color. So there's this weird like dichotomy between, oh my gosh, give me all the color. I love color. And then, oh, how do I use this?
1: Yeah, color is what I love. And it's actually been through teaching recently that I think I could give you a good answer. I believe that the best way to really learn how to use color is to simplify your color choices and to use a limited palette. If you take one red, one yellow, and one blue, and you say, this is kind of what I'm going to use right now, it doesn't really matter which yellow, and which red, and which blue you choose. But by simplifying down to just three and painting, your scene, you know, so that's what I often do is I have a yellow, a red, and a blue. And then I have white and black. And that's not going to make every color out there, but it's going to make 90% of the colors out there, maybe 85% of the colors. But the 15% of the colors that it's not going to make, they're not going to relate to your painting anyways. If you use those three colors and you mix everything out of those three limited colors, the primaries, you can mix you know, an orange with your red and your yellow. You can mix a green with your blue and your yellow, and you can mix a violet with your blue and your red. And then from there, you can mix everything else. You can mix browns and grays and anything else that's in there. And if you do your whole painting like that, there's going to be a couple things that happen. One, you're going to learn how to mix color, right? Because you're not just grabbing a tube of paint that has some maybe bright green. You don't have that. So how are you going to mix that? How are you going to get as close as you can to that? So you're going to learn a ton about mixing. The other thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a painting that ends up being really harmonious because all those colors are related to each other. You have a family of colors that you've just created. And I do this exercise in a course I teach where I say, go ahead, try, try to mix a color that doesn't work. And it's amazing because if you start with those three Primary colors, and you can try to mix anything, all the grays, all the, you know, anything, and it it looks amazing. I could show you the little exercise, and you could look at it and you'd say, like, yeah, that's really interesting because people always say, how do I not paint mud? Well, one of the best explanations I've heard is there's no quote unquote muddy color. There's nothing that's a bad color. It's just that you've mixed the color that doesn't work with the main colors on your painting. And it's because you've pulled kind of a foreign color in and you've maybe mixed it in with something and that color, it feels like it's totally different. And so it doesn't work with the rest of your painting. But if you are really just using three primary colors to mix everything else with, even if you mix up something that you might have referred to as mud before, if it's out of those three colors, I guarantee you it will work in your painting. And the other thing that I would say it's especially helpful if you do that and if you eliminate your colors, then you really have freedom because you don't have to worry as much about will the color work. And you can start thinking more about the most important of color, which is the value. And you start thinking, okay, do the values work? The value by that, I just mean how light or dark is that color. And in a painting, sometimes colors, quote unquote colors, look bad or they don't look right because it's not so much about the hue, like whether it's a red violet or a blue violet or anything like that. It's all just about how dark is it or how light is it. And so those are my tips I'd really just simplify simplify your choices and you'll actually, I think you'll be able to breathe a little bit deeper and go like, oh good, I don't need to worry so much about these colors working or not working.
0: Also with learning, there's just so much to learn. In some ways it's great, like when you're first getting started, you have no idea how much there is to learn. I feel like it's sometime in the middle area where you're like, oh no, there is so much to learn. And also how great there is so much to learn but with a limited palette also what i hear you saying is that you're giving yourself a win you're setting up a scenario for yourself where you can actually be successful because it's hard to paint with a ton of colors that's just true so here you are setting yourself up for not just to learn and improve more quickly but to have a a win which we need when we're learning
1: Oh, absolutely. And you can always add colors if you really want, or you can change the three colors that you're using. For instance, one of my favorite palettes for a long time, I have cadmium yellow light, which to me is kind of the best yellow because it's it can kind of go either direction. It can lean towards green or it can lean towards orange and it works and then I like ultramarine blue because it's kind of a subtle blue. It's fairly dark, but it's not overpowering. And then I had quinacridone red, which I'll say this about paint. You have to look at the manufacturers, the actual pigment. They use the pigment code on the back because when I say quinacridone red, there's a big difference between quinacridone red and golden and Utrecht and most companies and what I found in Liquitex, Liquitex calls a different pigment quinacridone red, (laughs) and then they call another color the same pigment that I would normally refer to as quinacridone red, they call it quinacridone crimson. So you kind of have to know what you're looking for and find the color and then like write down the pigment code. And then whenever you're switching brands, make sure that you find the pigment code that you're looking for. But anyways, quinacridone red, it's kind of a, it's a red that leans towards violet, but it still is bright enough that it can kind of create oranges and stuff. And then just last week when I got those new paints from Windsor Newton, I had ordered some cadmium red, and I just thought, you know what, I think for this painting I'm going to be working on, I don't really want the violet as much. I want kind of more of a brown. And so by choosing cadmium red, when it mixes with the ultramarine blue, it's not much of a violet at all. It's much more of a brownish color. And just by changing that one color, the feel of the painting, whatever I work on with that is going to change quite a bit. So you could substitute burnt sienna for red. You could substitute phthalo blue for the blue. You could substitute cobalt blue, or you could just do it with black. You don't need blue. There's so many different varieties. If you wanted a different yellow, you could choose a different yellow. And all of that is quite interesting, quite fun. And you can do it with the freedom, knowing that it's all going to kind of work together. It's just going to be, you know, to lean one direction or the other. But it's a lot of fun. But like you said, you're setting yourself up for success because you've taken away the ability, in a sense, to to have a bad color on your painting.
0: If someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice would you give them?
1: If you want to get really good at painting, my only advice is really to paint and to paint a lot and to not give up and to find teachers that you like and to try to model what they do. And then I would also add, I mean, because I started out with just paint and then I added find instruction that is helpful. And the third thing I would say is add community. I think that we need people around us who can encourage us and that we can kind of share the journey with. You know, when I think about Acrylic University, what we do, one of the reasons that we started acrylic university was because I was at that place where I was trying to be a full-time artist. I'd been selling a lot of work and I'd actually made the transition. I think I was a professional artist. I'd said like, I'm doing this. And I jumped into it and I started realizing, okay, I haven't really taken a workshop for a little while. I want to take workshops. And I thought, well, I'm an acrylic painter. I'm going to look for some acrylic instruction. And I'd had a couple artists that I'd studied under who were Canadians who worked in acrylics and they were really great but I didn't live in Canada anymore so I was looking around me and I had a hard time finding anybody who really worked in acrylics and I could find lots of oil painters that I admired so I eventually just started taking workshops from oil painters but what it did for me was I thought man am I the only person that's trying to paint representational landscape type of paintings that is having a hard time finding instruction. So I was like, okay, maybe I can create something to fill that need. So that was like the instruction part of Acrylic University was the first obvious thing that I I was like, okay, we need that. And then what we found right away was the community that was built was actually probably more important than the instruction Man, people just needed each other and they found such encouragement from each other. And so we have lots of people come into Acrylic University and we have people who leave Acrylic University, right? Like you have people come in and you have people that leave. The people who stay are the people who get connected to the community. They're the people who become friends with other people and find that they're not alone in this journey And I mean, I don't know what happens to everybody who goes away, but I know that the people that I see thriving the most are the people who are the most connected and they've made an investment into the community. And then they're the ones who paint. You know, so if we're thinking about those three things, because I say it in opposite order, right? My first thing is just paint. But you know what happens is if you don't know what you're doing, you get frustrated. So you need good instruction, you need somebody to tell you, Do this, like, don't do that. Try this, you know, go that direction. And that's good too. But I feel like if you don't have other people doing the same thing with you or people that are friends for the journey, you end up lacking. So I think you need all three. And it kind of came in the opposite order for us. Like we went with instruction, And then we found community was really important. And then we realized, oh, the people who are in the community, they're the ones that really stick with it. They're the ones who paint and they're the ones who grow. They're the ones that really thrive. And they're the ones that I told you yesterday. I'm like, I can't wait to get some of them on to teach because they're doing such amazing stuff that I see them as the next generation of, you know,
0: art instructors. You know, we talked about this before this call, but we talked about bravery. What is the biggest challenge you see when it comes to learning to paint?
1: What is generally kind of put out there is you don't really want to take risks. You don't really want to put yourself in a place of danger. And I think that there are times when that is appropriate and good, but in art, if we internalize that too much, it carries over there this fear of well, what will people think of me? Am I actually an artist? I don't know if I'm an artist. I've hardly painted at all. Can I call my Should I try this? Am I good enough? What if I get stuck? I don't see the end. I don't know exactly how to get where I want to go. I'm afraid that if I start, I'll get lost, and i you know I think that there's a thousand things that are risky in being creative. And the way that I look at art is, I think that it's a doorway into what's going on in our hearts kind of already. And I think that it can be helpful in saying, oh, you know what? I did something courageous here. Maybe it will help me do something courageous over here too. But they are connected because I just think we as people are connected. We, we're not different compartments like what we're working on is from within. And so I think it just takes bravery to live. Like When I met my wife, before she was my wife, I was afraid to call. I was afraid to call. And my sister had to convince me that I should call her. But boy, wouldn't it be sad if I hadn't done that? You know, I, I can just say that my life would be really not as great as it is now. And I think that that's kind of the way it is with a lot of things in life is there's a lot of stuff that we have to face into fears with. And I think that sometimes we don't like to think of art that way. We like to think, well, art should just be fun and it should just be this free flowing thing. And And maybe that's why I'm not, doing is because I'm just not an artist because it doesn't just come naturally to me and it's just not as fun as it should be and whatever. Or maybe we deny that it's even fearful at all. I think that the truth is that being creative is tricky. It's hard. You know, if you talk to any writer or any poet or any film producer or anything, there's this thing of facing into a blank canvas or into, a you know, the start of a project and you kind of have to go, you know what? Dang it, I'm doing it. I don't care if I feel like doing it or not. I'm I'm doing it. I'm just going to bite the bullet. I'm just going to start. And for me, a lot of times, I just think you kind of have to get practical about it. And you kind of have to say, what are the steps that I can do to help myself be creative or to take that first step? Because I, I think it's actually that very first step that's the hardest to take. Once you take that first step, it's easier to take the second, third. So I think like you might even just play a little game with yourself and say, well, I'm not going into paint. I'm just going to go put a couple brush strokes on. I'm just going to go like tone the canvas. That's all I need to do. I, whatever it takes to, like we know ourselves after being alive for a while, we start to know things that actually work with us. And I'm not against tricking myself or trying to trick myself and saying, well, you know, what? I don't need to do this. But then there's other times when I'm like, you know what, I just need to, I just need to start. Like I just need to put it up there and, and just start. But there's a lot of reasons to be fearful. I I guess I should say there are a lot of reasons we are fearful. But the truth is, they're usually not that important. They're usually not that real. They're usually just up here.
0: For those of you who can't see, judge is pointed to his head. (laughs) Um, Well, then what are the steps of the creative process? And why do you think it's useful to understand those?
1: Yes, we borrowed these from somebody and I can't remember his name right now, but the steps of the creative process are step one. This is awesome. Step two, this is tricky. Step three, this is terrible. Step four, I am terrible. Step five, this might be okay. And step six, this is awesome. And it was probably five years ago when somebody first shared that with me and I laughed so hard when I heard it because I just thought this is so good and so funny and so accurate because we all go through these stages and I think just realizing that it's natural to go through the stages is helpful. The guy who wrote that was a film director so I mean he's not talking about painting but boy that's I've sure feel like that when I paint and it's almost like I go through all of those stages every time I paint and I just think that knowing that you're going to go through something and setting your expectations for that really helps you like if you signed up for a race and you you know what I'll do is I'm going to go do this race it's 11 o'clock I'm going to go run this race and then at eleven 15, I'm going to hop in the car and I'm going to go get groceries and I'm going to do this and that But you didn't realize that the race was a marathon and you didn't realize that it was going to be at least like five hours of grueling, agonizing run. You know, your perspective on that is going to be really different. Right. So if you kind of go into it knowing that you're going to face challenges and it's not all going to come super easily, your mental readiness for those challenges is you're going to be there and you're going to say, okay, yeah, I expected this. (laughs) It still doesn't necessarily feel good that I feel like my painting is terrible, but at least I knew I was going to go through this. And I know that if I keep going, there's going to be a time when I get to this other stage that says, oh, this might be okay. And if I keep going, then at the end, I'm going to look back at it and I'm going to say, that was awesome. And in fact, part of the thing that makes art so fun is that it is hard. If it was so easy, like it would be boring. If art was simply like turning on your printer and saying print, then boy, that's not that fun. No one pays me to print off photos for them and I wouldn't do that. That's not my idea of fun. So the challenge of art is where the fun of art comes because you actually get to dive into things that are hard and you realize that it's good for you.
0: You can learn more about Jed Dorsey, including his workshops at jeddorseyart.com and on Instagram and Facebook, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jed.
1: Kelly, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me and good luck with this podcast. It's super awesome.
0: Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 27 for show notes While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get more ideas on how to get better at painting. And if you like the show and want to help it live into the future, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. And speaking of supporters, thank you to everyone at Patreon, and thank you to high-gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie Miller, and Rihanna DeRold. Happy painting!